Once again, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5? This morning we continue our journey through the Sermon on the Mount, which covers Matthew 5 through 7, with another teaching by Jesus designed to correct what the people in Israel were being taught by the scribes and Pharisees. And uh, throughout this section, from verse 21 of chapter 5 through verse 48, Jesus is correcting some faulty teaching that the scribes and Pharisees had been teaching the people of Israel. The scribes and Pharisees were the teachers of Israel, but they were doing it wrong. Uh, just because a person has a large following and a big ministry doesn't necessarily mean they're teaching the truth. Everyone thought these guys were the most holy, the most right on, the most gifted teachers in Israel, and they listened to them. But Jesus now, of course, he uh, outranks them, and he has been correcting each of their faulty teachings. Now this morning, we come to a section in verses 33 to 37, where Jesus deals with the subject of honesty. Let's read it. Verse 33, the Lord Jesus said, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all. Neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. You know, I think one of the biggest evidences of the breakdown of our society today is in the area of honesty and integrity. You know, there was a time in our nation's history when a man's word was his bond. A time when many conducted business with the shake of a hand instead of with a gaggle of attorneys. Times have changed. It was a time when an honest businessman or woman who stood by their word was honored and their business prospered as a result of it. But today, many people feel that lying in business must go hand in hand to be successful. In fact, it's gotten so bad that many believe only suckers and chumps tell the truth in business. That to sign a contract and then find ways around it, well, that shows that you're a shrewd and, and a sophisticated business person. And of course, this doesn't just apply to business. I mean, good heavens, look at our politicians and politics today. I mean, politicians will pretty much promise us anything to get into office, and once they get there, they do whatever they want, for the most part. Now, look, as our Judeo-Christian heritage erodes more and more, we as a nation are reverting more and more to our fallen inclinations, which I do believe our Judeo-Christian heritage uh, has uh, kept us from many of these things. You look in pagan countries where the gospel is not penetrated, you'll find that this kind of thing is just commonplace dishonesty and, and uh, all kinds of other things. But as our Judeo-Christian heritage has eroded over the years, you see that we are acting more and more like a pagan nation. Uh, guess what, folks? We are pretty much a pagan nation. And what's left, of course, when the foundation is destroyed, and of course the, the psalmist said if the foundation is destroyed, what can the righteous do? And the foundation is being destroyed. Uh, God is being taken, has been taken out of our public school system. Um, in fact, he's being banished from most of our lives, uh, most areas of our lives. And the result is that we have a system that's now controlled almost exclusively by the father of lies. Now, 
Jesus told the Pharisees that they spoke the language of their father, the devil. Who Jesus said when the devil talks, that's all he knows how to do is lie. He's the father of lies. When he lies, he's speaking his native language. Lying for many has become their native language. In fact, let's just be honest. For all of us, it was our native language. I mean, all of us are born into this world as fallen sinners. Therefore, all of us are born with lying as our natural tongue, really. I mean, you don't have to teach a child to lie. You have to teach a child to tell the truth. I mean, lying just comes naturally. It's up to the parents to teach a child to be honest and upright. But if a person is raised in a house where lying is accepted and even, even encouraged, believe it or not, I've seen this, or if young people surround themselves with peers that think that lying is cool, well, they're going to continue to speak their native language. And when that happens, and more and more people come to that point where integrity, character, morality are outdated, antiquated things that really a cool culture doesn't recognize anymore today, what happens is that honesty more and more is being thrown out the window, and the result is that really people don't trust each other anymore. And so Jesus is coming against those who play fast and loose with the truth. He first of all said in verse 33, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old. Now he's correcting false teaching. He said, you've heard that it was said you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. Now, there was nothing wrong with that statement. It doesn't really come out of the Old Testament verbatim. It was a teaching of the scribes and Pharisees who actually took several Old Testament passages and put them together to make a kind of a hybrid statement on swearing and oath-taking. Let me read them to you. You don't have to turn to these. I'll just read them. You can write them down. They took this condensed statement from basically three other texts. Numbers 30, verse 2. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Leviticus 19, verse 12. You shall not swear by my name falsely, God said, nor profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. And then Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And it was actually that last verse out of Exodus 20, verse 7, which was the third commandment of the Decalogue that the scribes and Pharisees used to circumvent or actually to get around what God had clearly intended when he commanded his people to be honest in all their dealings with each other. But first, I just want to point out a couple things. When Jesus said in verse 33, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. Those two words, swear and oath, both come from the same Greek root. It means to make a statement and then call on God to be a witness to the truth of that statement, calling down a curse from him upon yourself if, in fact, you were not telling the truth. We do this. We say things like, I swear to God I'm telling the truth. Or, you know, as God is my witness, I'm being truthful, right? I said first service that in court... Uh, witnesses are sworn in by laying their left hand on the Bible. I was corrected out in the hall after service and said, actually, my uncle's a judge, and they stopped 
having people put their hand on the Bible about 15 years ago. How did you even know that? I don't spend any time in court, thank God. I'm sure that's <laughs> something that you pr- probably appreciate. Uh, but, you know, the, all they do is raise their hand and swear now. Do you swear? I, I, people swear a lot. I mean, you know, I mean they don't used to, left hand in the Bible, raise your right hand, repeat after me. Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God? And, of course, some people responded, I do. And they lied their heads off anyways. But that was the idea, though. You were, you were calling upon God. Say, Lord, if I'm not going to tell the truth here, bring a curse upon me. That was the idea. The Greek word for oath carried with it the idea of binding up what you were saying, strengthening your word, reinforcing it by calling upon God to bear witness of the truthfulness of what you were saying. And again, the idea was that to strengthen the truthfulness of what you were saying, you always wanted to swear by something or someone greater than yourself. That was the idea. When you took an oath or you swore, it was you were, you were swearing by somebody greater or by something greater. So, you know, you might hear somebody say, hey, look, I swore by my mother's honor, assuming your mother had honor, and I swore by my mother's honor, I'm telling the truth, right? You wouldn't swear by your dog's honor, your dog has no honor. And even if the dog did have some honor, it wouldn't be greater than your honor. You've got to swear by somebody or something greater than yourself. That's why we swear our oaths in the name of God, because nobody is greater than our God. Now look, don't think that Jesus is condemning all oath-taking is wrong. Some misinterpret this to mean that Jesus is forbidding oaths, right? You can't even take an oath before you take the witness stand. That's what they believe. But I don't believe that's what Jesus is saying. First of all, oaths are not bad. In fact, in the Old Testament, God even commanded that his people take oaths. He said in Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. And so the Lord even commanded his people to take oaths. But listen to me. They were only to be taken in the most special occasions because they were so solemn. So when you got married, you stood before God and you vowed to love each other for better or worse, sickness, health, good times, bad times, until death separated you from each other. That was a solemn vow. That was a special occasion, right? When you joined the military, you took a vow to to be loyal to your country, to defend it against all enemies, foreign and domestic. There are times in our lives when vows are not only needed, they're right and good, aren't they? But this is where the scribes and Pharisees had perverted this whole concept. First of all, they weren't teaching the solemnness of taking oaths, that they were only to be taken under certain special and solemn conditions. Because of it, this led to frivolous swearing and oath-taking, where they began to use oaths in their everyday dealings with people, listen, when their word should have been good enough. I mean, you have to wonder about a person who can't say anything important or promise you anything without invoking the name of God, right? I mean, you have to begin to wonder after a while, I mean, how trustworthy is this person, right? Your neighbor comes over and he says, look, can I borrow your lawnmower? All right, look, it's brand new. Do you promise you're going to take good care of it? I swear by all that's high and holy. You know, come on. Now, now i got doubts about the guy because, you know, let's face it, all right? A simple yes would have done. Come on. When a guy goes to those lengths to kind of shore up his words, I, I have a little... I have some doubts about the guy's character now. I don't want to see the thing on eBay, all right? (laughs) 
Which brings us to the second way the scribes and the Pharisees were perverting this whole issue. They place all the emphasis on the wording used in the vow instead of on the principle behind the vow, which of course was honesty. And in true Pharisee fashion, they felt righteous because they had kept the letter of the law, even though they had violated the spirit of the law. Once again, God commanded in Numbers 30, verse 2, if a man makes a vow, listen, to the Lord, keep that in mind, or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word, he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And so here comes the scribes and Pharisees. And they were going around teaching that only the oaths made to the Lord or sworn in his name were binding, but those not made to him or sworn in his name, hey, those were not binding. And again, this led to the whole thing where they developed binding and non-binding oaths, a practice that Jesus condemns. In fact, turn to Matthew 23, because he really blasts them for this in Matthew 23. And he's talking to the scribes and Pharisees here. Starting in verse 16. You can read the whole chapter. I mean, he lets them have it eight times. He says, but woe to you blind guides. Okay, these were the guys out in front directing everybody else how to get close to God. He said, woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, <laughs> it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, oh, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, Jesus said. For which is greater? The gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold. And whoever swears by the altar, they said, that's nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it in all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Remember when you were a kid and you gave your word, one of your buddies, one of your girlfriends, right? But you had your, secretly had your hand behind your back and your fingers were crossed, which meant didn't count. Well, that's exactly what these guys were doing, playing games with their word. It was nothing more than legalized lying. In their minds, though, they had found a way to get out of what they had promised while still feeling very righteous. They built loopholes into their promises. But then again, don't forget, they were attorneys. And I'm picking on the lawyers today. It's a lot of good lawyers, Christian lawyers. But uh, these guys, you know, I mean, you know, you get around attorneys and they want to pick words apart. And, you know, and contracts are made, and you think you know what it's saying, but, oh, you know, you sign the contract, and there's a little loophole in there. That's how these guys were operating. But, again, the issue in the Old Testament passages that dealt with oath-taking wasn't on the wording. It was on the principle of honesty and integrity. What God was simply commanding his people was to be people of their word. Not to say one thing and do another. Again, verses 30. Through 36, Jesus said, But I say to you, don't swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. Listen, God is the creator of all things. This idea that I can swear by something other than his name 
or his person. And that's a, a loophole that I can use to get out of doing what I promise is ridiculous. Because everything you swear by essentially is was created by God. Ultimately, you're swearing by God. Look, very simply, swearing falsely is a sin, whether it's done in God's name or not. God is a God of truth, and as, as his people who represent him, we are also to be people who tell the truth and keep our word. Listen, even if it isn't always to our advantage to keep our word. What do I mean? Well, I always think of what the psalmist said in Psalm 15, verse 4, on this subject. He said, that a, he said, a righteous man is one who swears to his own hurt. Who swears to his own hurt. What does that mean? It means a righteous person, when they give their word, they swear to do something. Maybe um, they're going to do some work for you. And they promise they're going to do it for this cost and so on and so forth. And as they begin to get into the project, they realize they've underbid it. But they go ahead and use the materials they promised and they finish the job even if they lose money because they gave their word. And a righteous person understands my word is my bond. I represent the God of truth. He'll take care of me. I'm just going to do what I promised I was going to do and trust the Lord. You see, God wants us to realize, and this should be a slam dunk, but apparently a lot of people in the church don't realize this that God has not compartmentalized our lives. There's a lot of folks in, that go to church who look at church as one area of their life, and then as they walk out the doors after the service, they walk into the world, and that's a whole other area of their life. They, they live a, a life that's compartmentalized. you got God and church and Sunday and all of that. Then you got the world and business and all of that, right? And church, well, that's the place where we always tell the truth. But out there in the world, especially in the business world, well, you know, that's a place where God understands I can't always tell the truth. If I want to make the sale or I want to make a living or I want to be successful, then I need sometimes to fudge on the facts a little bit, right? I mean, God understands that. I mean, come on. That's just how you, you got to do business today. That's how people reason. God doesn't see it that way. See, God is all in all. In him we live and move and have our what? Our being. The same breath that we use to speak was the very breath of life that God breathed into us in the first place. And he expects us to use it to honor him and to glorify him with truth at all times. At all times. Since he is the God of truth, listen, who places his word even above his name. That should really cause us to take pause. God says, I am the Lord God. I place my word even above my name. Wow. And I think God said that because if a man's word is not his bond, then he can't be trusted. And God is saying, I'm a God who can be trusted. When I tell you something, I will perform what I say. But along these lines, I like what commentator and author William Barclay said with regard to this. He said, and I quote, Here is a great eternal truth. Life cannot be divided into compartments, in some of which God is involved, and in others of which he is not involved. There cannot be one kind of language in the church and another kind of language in the shipyard or the factory or the office. There cannot be one kind of standard of conduct in the church and another kind of standard in the business world. The fact is that God does not need to be invited into certain departments of life and kept out of others. He is everywhere and all through life 
and every activity of life he is there. He hears not only the words which are spoken in his name, he hears all words. And there cannot be any such thing as a form of words which evades bringing God into a transaction. We will regard all promises as sacred if we remember that all promises are made in the presence of God. End quote. Well, just to add weight to that, to kind of reinforce that, you remember in Proverbs chapter 6, the writer talks about the six, no, the seven things that God hates. Hey, I learned that list early in my Christian life. I memorized that. If God went out of his way to say, these are seven things I hate, I want to know what they are so I can stay away from them. Do I always? Not always, but I'm aware of it. But listen, in verse 16, the writer says, These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, number two, a lying tongue. Right at the top of the list. Also Proverbs 12, verse 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal truthfully are his delight. This is why Jesus went on to say, again, beginning of verse 34, But I say to you, do not swear at all. And then verse 37, But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. And again, what does this mean? Is Jesus saying that we are forbidden under any circumstance from ever taking an oath? And again, some believe it does. I don't believe so. And I believe I have scripture on my side to prove that, I know that the night before Jesus went to the cross as he was being interrogated by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. And at one point, the high priest commanded him to respond under oath. Matthew 26, verses 63 and 4. At first, Jesus kept silent. And then the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, Jesus didn't respond. Wait a minute. Sorry. Can't take any oaths. <laughs> uh, can't answer that question. No. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power on high, God the Father, and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus allowed himself to be put under oath, and he swore to the truthfulness of who he was. Paul the Apostle put himself under oath in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 23, where Paul said, Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul. That's the language of oath-taking. That to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. And Paul was defending his uh, itinerary. They were saying that Paul didn't come because he doesn't care about us. And Paul said, are you kidding me? There was reasons I couldn't make it. But I swear to you, by the Lord God himself, that I'm telling you the truth, the reasons why I couldn't make it to see you. What about vows? Well, you know, Paul made a couple of vows. They're mentioned in Acts 18, verse 18, and Acts 21, verse 26. You can read those on your own. He's telling me it's not right or it's, a, it's against the law of God to vow to a person you want to marry to be faithful. I mean, that's a legitimate time to make a vow. Listen. Sometimes in certain situations and at solemn times, it is necessary for us to make a vow or swear an oath. And I don't really think Jesus is forbidding that here. I'll tell you, I'll go one farther. Even God himself swore with an oath as recorded in Hebrews 
chapter 6, verses 16 to 19. Let me read it to you. Now, when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath, so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is strong and trustworthy. It's an anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. What's he talking about? He's talking about the promise that God made us to give us eternal life if we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Paul said God gave us a solemn promise. But then to reinforce it, if that was even necessary when you talk about God, then he added on top of it an oath. And since God cannot swear by anybody greater than himself, he swore by himself. So that by, the, by two immutable things, God's promise and his oath, we are absolutely confident if we have put our faith in Christ, he has guaranteed us a place in heaven someday through the veil into the Holy of Holies, into his very throne room. I mean, a place in heaven that is reserved for us, that fades not away, that will never corrupt, right? For those who are kept by the power of God through faith. That's a pretty awesome promise, right? So oath-taking isn't forbidden by God. All right, let's bring this to application. That's, that's the real point here. So then what is Jesus saying here? Well, folks, I'm sure you've already figured it out. We've already mentioned it. Simply, the Lord Jesus Christ is saying that God's people should be honest and trustworthy and shouldn't need to strengthen their promises by swearing oaths. All they should have to say is yes or no, and that should be the end of it, right? In other words, Jesus is saying don't swear or make oaths, listen, in your regular conversations. He's not saying there aren't special times when an oath is appropriate. He's just saying when you do your business dealings from day to day, or as Christians, if you promise each other something, you are to do what you've promised. We are to be people of our word. If someone asks you, can you come over and help me move this weekend? And you don't really want to help them move. And you really don't have any intention of helping them move. Don't say, I'll pray about it. Don't Christians do that? Let me pray about it. You know, after all, I mean, you know, when I was a young Christian, that, that used to get to me. I mean, I, I used to fall for that. Now I say, bro, you know, there's nothing to pray about. Do you, do you want to help or do you not want to help? Okay. Just give it to me straight. You know, I'll pray about it. Sounding all spiritual and you're thinking, I'm not going forget about that. All right. I mean, you know, you're not going to pray about it, man. Don't, don't tell them you're going to pray about it, you know? We do this all the time, don't we? And because of this, the world, who doesn't really like us anyways, right? But that doesn't mean they don't respect us if we are people of integrity and honesty, which is what we should be. Peter did say, look, the world hates us so much, they will make up lies about us if they have to, to pin stuff on us that isn't true. Just make sure, Peter said, if they lie about you, they, it is a lie. That there's nothing they can really pin on you. 
You know, there was a time in our nation's history when being a pastor was carried a lot of honor with it. I mean, pastors were considered to be men of high moral character, men who were honest and trustworthy. All of that's pretty much changed. I saw a survey a few years ago in a newspaper that took, I don't know, about 15, 20 different professions, okay? You know, all kinds of professions, school teacher, doctor, you know, uh, the whole deal. And uh, they asked people to rate these various professions according to integrity and trustworthiness, okay? Here's these professions. Which professions do you rank as the most trustworthy and which do you rank as the least trustworthy was the idea. Well, 100 years ago, gang, guess what? Clergy would have been right at the top. In the survey that I saw, we were near the bottom, listen, just above the used car salesman. I thought, ouch, that hurts. I mean... Today, pastors and evangelists are seen more as hucksters and conmen who can't be trusted. Why? Well, they're always asking for money, you know, and uh, then driving these fancy cars and living in these palatial estates, or there's some scandal that comes out eventually. But look, in all fairness now, okay, didn't Jesus tell us there would be tares among the wheat, wolves among the sheep, the false Side by side with the true, right? I mean, Peter mentioned in the last days there were going to be many hucksters and con artists who would come into the church trying to make merchandise off of you, trying to separate you from your money, is the idea. So a lot of these folks, and I'm not saying all, I'm saying a good majority, I'm convinced, are phonies who take advantage of God's people because you're good-hearted. You're, 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 you're gullible. No, no, I think we're just trusting. I'd rather err on the side of trust than be a cynic. Some people get so cynical, you know. I, I would rather err on the side of grace and trust. Somebody calls the church and says, we need some help. We, we, financially, we don't have any money. We ask a few questions. But if I come to a place where it's a, I don't, it's a toss-up, I don't have to tell them the truth or not, I'll err on the side of, of grace and I'll give them what they need. to. I'll give them food for the week. I think that's what God wants us to be. He wants us to be good-hearted. The world takes advantage of us, okay, but at least we tried to be a good witness to the people of this world. So I think a lot of these characters that you read about in the papers and scandals and embezzling money from the ministry, I think a lot of those are just phonies. They are con men and hucksters. But let's be honest, folks. We have to admit there is a real lack of integrity in the church today, it's become a real problem. Many Christians no longer take honesty seriously. Apparently, giving their word doesn't mean all that much to them because they seem to break it so easily. And maybe in part it's because, you know, the world has gotten so bad and most Christians work out in the world and you rub elbows with the people of the world all day. There's so much lying and cheating going on in the world, you get jaded to it. And then you begin to think, because everyone's doing it, maybe it's not all that bad for you to do a little bit of and you hear people, I don't know if they're saved or not, but I've heard people say, oh, come on, I'm just, I'm just telling little white lies, okay? I don't see that in the Bible, but, you know, I'm just telling little white lies. I mean, no big, I'm not murdering anybody. You're making a big deal out of this. Well, i got to understand that I work in a business where I'm selling. I mean, I have to make, I have to kind of fudge things a little bit. I mean, little white lies, surely he understands. I see. Well, I think God wants you to understand something. In Revelation 21, verse 8, listen to what it says. Now, John is talking about those who wind up going to hell. 
He said, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters. And right about this point, most people are saying, right on, Lord. Send them to hell. Those are bad people. Not like me. I'm a good person. But send those guys to hell. And then what does God say? And what? All liars. Ooh. All liars? He didn't say, and all those who tell big whopper lies, but you guys who tell the little white ones, you're going to get in. All liars. See, it tells us, and again, once in a while, God has to remind us of how holy and righteous he really is because we begin to play fast and loose with sin, especially if you live in Sodom and Gomorrah, which is basically where we're living today, where things are so bad and people are so corrupt, you begin to think, well, a little bit isn't so bad. They're black, I'm gray. That looks better than black, doesn't it? How about white like Jesus? That's the standard. But we start to think, you know, hey, a little bit's not so bad. I'm certainly not like the people in the world that I work with. We start to categorize sin into the small, medium, and large varieties. And a lot of people think if I stay away from the big and most of the medium, God indulges me with all the small stuff. It's not really a big issue. And God says, all liars, all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone which is the second death. He's talking about hell now, eternal judgment. You know, James, picking up on what Jesus said, he echoed what the Lord had said in James 5, verse 12. But above all my brethren, now he is talking to Christians now. Earlier in Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, I believe that, of course, unbelievers were mostly in view there. I think totally in view. Whether they be flat-out unbelievers or churchy unbelievers, they're, you know, all unbelievers are going to hell and their lives are characterized by all these sins. But the lying. A person who says to me, I'm a Christian. Now, Christians can lie once. I mean, I'm not saying Christians never lie. But if you got somebody who calls himself a Christian and yet their life is still characterized by incessant lying. I mean, I know some people like that. They call themselves Christians, but I'm not kidding you. They're always, always lying. You have to ask yourself who my father is. Is my father God the Father, the God of all truth? Or is it the devil, the father of lies? Because I'll tell you what, when I got saved, believe me, I work with truck drivers, okay? And man, we'd all swear up a storm. I mean, we, you know, man, I could cuss the wallpaper off that wall before I got saved. I mean, it was no problem at all. I mean, that was my punctuation, okay, when I spoke. Okay, and that's all I'm going to say about that. But, but immediately when I got saved, I mean, good heavens, that was the first thing God dealt with was my language. And lying was part of that. I mean, I just know what God has done in my life. I mean, am I perfect? Of course not. But good heavens, when the Spirit of God comes in, the Spirit of truth, He begins to work truth in our inward parts. Isn't that what the Word says? God desires truth in the inward parts. It starts in the heart, and then it works its way out into our everyday lives. And James said, But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth 
or with any oath. Again, James isn't saying all oath-taking, oath-taking is forbidden. He's just saying don't use oaths in your everyday conversation and business dealings. But let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. And I think there James is talking about just God chastening you. If you're one of those people that are always invoking his name and yet you don't really have the intention of keeping your word. Especially if it means losing money or not making the sale. Look, we're done. Let me just say this and we'll close. As Christians, let's purpose in our hearts to be people of our word. Folks, this is so basic. It's Christianity 101. I mean, it's so basic, you know, can I pray for you to receive Jesus? Sure. And then we say in Jesus' name, boom, they're saved. And now you say the first thing you do is you make sure that you tell the truth now. That should be the first thing we tell them. As Christians, let's purpose to be people of our word. Make truthfulness and integrity the hallmark of your life. When you give your word, keep it. Even if you find out it's going to be to your disadvantage, keep it anyways. God blesses those who walk in truth. Look, maybe it'll help you if you think twice before you give your word to do something, okay? I think the problem is sometimes we're just too quick to give our word, promise something. And fathers do this, okay? Be careful. Because you know what? Busy dads... You know, your little little guy says to your dad, we haven't done anything, can we play ball next week? Yes, absolutely. Then he gets busy with work and he doesn't. And his child thinks, well, I can't trust my dad. Look, if you give your word, think about it before you give it. If you give it, though, God says you're bound to keep it. You're bound to keep it. And look, since he's already dealt with adultery and divorce and remarriage in this section alone, The first place we ought to start applying this principle of honesty and integrity and keeping our promises is in the air of our marriage, our marriages. We made promises to each other when we got married. Those were solemn vows before the God of heaven. In fact, you didn't just make a vow to your spouse. You made a vow to God who made that person in his image and brought you together to be one. The devil is trying to say it's no big deal. All right, you made a promise. So what? Promises are broken all the time. God wants you happy, doesn't he? Certainly your happiness overrides any vow you made. Well, you better talk to God about that. Because I don't see that in my Bible. So start there in your home. And then let it work its way out into your business dealings. Your everyday life. The way you interact with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Look. Again, guys, I'm just saying, Jesus Christ is saying some pretty penetrating things, isn't he? But this is so basic, this is something that we should all say, oh yeah, well, of course. What else would a Christian do except be a person of honesty and integrity? Yet I can't tell you how many people have come to me and said, look, I won't hire Christians to do any work in my house. I get that shepherd's guide where all Christians advertise, and I've called several people to do work for me. They've done shoddy work, they haven't kept their word, they've left me hanging, they've taken my money, they haven't finished the job. What can you say? God says, look, you're representing me. I'm the God of truth who places his word above his name. Don't you think you should place your word above your business or every other area of your life? So may God give us grace. Every once in a while, we need to be reminded of the basics. And folks, this is about as basic as it gets. 
May God give us grace to be people of truth. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have reminded us once again that you are a holy and righteous God. That no, sin is never right, Lord. Sin is never okay, I don't care how small or, or you know, insignificant it might seem to us. It's not small and insignificant to you. There are no small sins in your eyes. It's just sin. And Lord, we pray that we might be people of truth. Forgive us, Father. If we have emulated more the father of lies more than the God of truth in our lives. Forgive us, Lord, that we come to church and we act holy and righteous. And, and I'm not saying it's an act. I mean, we are sincere. But then we go out into the world and think we can act a whole different way out there. Forgive us, Lord. Because we are not to act one way in church and another way in the world. There is no such thing as compartmentalized Christianity. You rule every area of our life. And we want to honor you in all areas. Give us grace, Lord, to walk in truth. That you might be honored. And that we might be lights in the midst of this wicked, dark, and perverse generation. We just thank you, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.